verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Your life is defined by one question. Some think that question is, do you support the Red Sox or the Yankees? Some think that question is, will you marry me? Some think that question is, which political candidate do you support? Important questions, no doubt, but not all defining. Your life is defined by one question. What will you live for? Now, I'm sure you can think of other good questions, like Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? That's a very important question. But I also believe that it's one that's directly tied together to the question, what will you live for? There was a rich young man who went to Jesus, asking what he should do to enter God's kingdom. He had an idea of who Jesus was. He was trusting that Jesus could give him an authoritative answer. Jesus told the man to give away all his riches to the poor and to follow him. Though he had looked to Jesus for guidance, that young man didn't do what Jesus said. He walked away sad because he was living for his money. He was ruled by endless desire. Your life is defined by what you live for. And what you live for will also determine what you will die for. And once again, as we enter into chapter 4, Peter points us to the example of Jesus. He points out Jesus has suffered in the body. 
And we're supposed to take something from that. And what we're supposed to take away from that, according to Peter, is that this demonstrates that Jesus was done with sin. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And of course, we see that all across the course of Jesus' life, culminating in the cross. He didn't repay evil for evil. He had adhered to the divine will to the very end, saying, not my will, but yours be done. This attitude of obedience is completely contrary to the sinful nature that inhabits every human being. The sinful nature which would rather say, my will, not God's, be done. Peter says we are to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ. That we, like him, ought to be done with sin. Now this is daunting. How could we possibly do this on our own? The fact is, is we can't. It's only possible because Jesus suffered. And so because Jesus was done with sin, because he suffered, now we can be done with sin. And suffering, while a burden, is something that is welcomed because we prefer God's will over our own wills. And we recall that the transformation of ourselves is not something that begins from within us, but comes from outside and inhabits us through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit who transforms us day by day. And so, it is indeed possible to arm ourselves in just this sort of way. To answer the exhortation of Paul when in Ephesians 6.13 he says, therefore put on the full armor of God. We can do that because we have the Holy Spirit, because we have been joined to Jesus Christ. And His victory is now our victory. We are no longer slaves to sin. This outcome makes us radically different than other human beings. Peter says in verse 2, he says, that those who arm themselves in this way, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. They live for the will of God. That's the Christian difference. Yes, our faith begins with making a certain confession of our belief in Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, come down to die on our behalf, to be raised on our behalf so that we could be joined to His resurrection life. We must confess all that. But the real difference between the Christian and anyone else in this world is defined simply by this. The Christian lives for the will of God. 
And again, this is possible because of what Christ has done. Because you know, last week we talked quite a bit about baptism. About how through baptism we are joined to the death of Christ. And because we are joined to the death of Christ, we are made dead to sin's power. In Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we no longer be slaves to sin. In Galatians 5.24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Before this death, we were slaves to sin. Strive as all we might to live in obedience to God's commands. We only worked to condemn ourselves further as we failed to do so. The majority of our life has been given over to sin. I'd say that even if you've become a Christian at a very early age, I became a Christian at a very early age. I was baptized at the age of 12. And yet, throughout that process, God was working out my salvation. I gave way too much of my time to sin. And this is what Peter points out here. He says, you have given more than enough to sin. It's had its time. Now give yourself over to God. Think about how much you've already given to sin. Will you give God less than all the time that remains? We should hope not. We should hope that we would give everything to Him. Because now in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves to God, not to sin. Paul says in Romans 6, and again, this is the chapter that's talking quite a bit about baptism, and Paul's filling out the real, this new reality that we gain in Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, verses 13 through 14, and then going down to verses 20 through 23, he says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice how our freedom from sin is part and parcel of this gift of eternal life that we receive in Jesus Christ. That eternal life is not merely defined as life in perpetuity, but it's characterized by the freedom from sin. We're not doing God any favors when we don't sin. We are receiving divine favor. We are receiving a precious gift that now in Jesus Christ we no longer live as slaves to sin. Our freedom from sin is a gift to us. 
It's not a gift to God that we offer to Him. In the time that we have been given, that remains, has purpose in it. Sometimes I think um, we can look at our, our lives as kind of time spent in a doctor's waiting room. We've all had to sit in the waiting room or in the DMV when the DMV was really slow and bad. And, um, you know, especially when you're in a doctor's waiting room, you're sitting there, there's all kind of random magazines around, and you just do whatever you will. You know, I guess I'll look at this and kill some time and stuff. I think very often we view our time as waiting in that sort of way waiting for Christ's return, or waiting till the day we die, and then we'll be resurrected by Christ. We just view it as time that we could spend however we will. I'll look at Sports Illustrated, or some cooking magazine, or something like that. That's not what Christian waiting means. Christian waiting is filled with purpose and preparation. It's like preparing for a wedding day. Now, I know some weddings come together very quickly, um, and don't require much preparation, but most weddings do. Some of you who are older parents are familiar with that experience. You prepare long in advance for that coming day, getting caterers, sending out the invites, doing all these different things. This is what Christian waiting is like. It's filled with purpose. In Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Again, we live with the purpose of living for God's will while we wait for the kingdom to come in its fullness. And of course, when you really live like this, when you really live for God's will, it will draw attention. Sometimes good attention but also some bad attention. People will give you a hard time for not going along, just get along. Cheat here, watch this, try that, celebrate them. What's the big deal? Just chill out. Peter anticipates this. He knows this is what Christians will encounter. And so in verse 4 he says, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. What a deal, right? <laughs> we, we come and follow Jesus and we get abused. Who wants to sign up for that? 
Isn't it strange? Doesn't it seem upside down? We obey God. Before obeying God, we face more hardship. How do we make sense of this? Well, I think we have to think about it within the frame of God's design for human flourishing. If sin had not entered this world, if sin had not entered in and broken this creation, living in obedience to God's commands would have always reliably resulted in our happiness, our pure flourishing in the moment. And we know we'll have that ultimately. But in the short term, we do face hardship for being obedient to God. But it's not because of any shortcoming in God's commands. It's because this world falls short. It's because of human brokenness. It's only because of sin in the world that we suffer for doing good. It's only because of the current brokenness that we cannot enjoy the peace of the age to come. But Peter wants to reassure us. He wants to reassure Christians. He says that the status quo will not stand. In verse 5, he says, But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's a judgment that is coming. And when we read Peter's words here saying that they're going to have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, sometimes we're not clear about when that's going to happen. Some people think, oh, does that happen when a person dies and they stand before God? If we look at the rest of the New Testament, and it's implicit in what Peter's saying here, I think, what he's talking about is the day of final judgment, the day when Christ returns. That occasion is described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. John testifies, saying, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God issues a definitive judgment upon those who do not live for His will, but for their own desires. He renders an absolute condemnation against those who who heaped abuse upon His children and never repented. And so they will be destroyed, never to see life again. Now, this judgment comes as bad news for, for e- these evildoers who, who never re- repent. But it's good news for believers. Because this is their vindication. 
And I think this helps us explain verse 6, which on the surface could be a little bit confusing when first reading it. Peter says, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. What Peter is talking about is those Christians who have lived, who have suffered, and who have now died. They are now dead, but the gospel was preached to them. So what Peter is saying here is that human judges might condemn them to death by their standards, just like they did Jesus. But God will overrule. These who were condemned by human judges will live by the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And we can imagine Peter here thinking back to Jesus' teaching when he told him and the other disciples in Matthew 10, verses 27 through 31, What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You can be fearless. You can suffer the mocking, the abuse, because those who condemn you cannot destroy you. Anything they kill, God will resurrect. You may fall to the ground, but you are always, always in the Father's care. And He will raise you up. We are helped in remembering this as we remember what time it is. Peter says in verse 7, The end of all things is near. Now, this might strike you a little bit as, as, as a little bit funny because Peter's writing about 2,000 years ago, and yet he's saying the end of all things is near. So, was Peter wrong, seeing as we're still here today? I think this, this reflects kind of our fast food mindset when it comes to things being near. Our idea of being something being near is like, okay, the next five minutes, it's near. When Peter talks about the end of all things being near, what he's talking about is the age, that the age of the end has been ushered in by Jesus Christ. This is the season of the end. And we know this because Christ was raised from the dead. The Jewish people weren't expecting that, honestly. They were expecting just the general resurrection at the end, and that's the end end of all things. But Jesus is the first fruits of this harvest. And so we are in the season of the harvest. It's approaching. And Jesus has signaled that this end is coming. 
And so you can think about it in the same way as like almost on the first day of fall, you, you can feel the Christmas in the air, the leaves start to fall, and you could tell your child the winter is coming. And they might think the next day, well, where's winter? I thought you told me it was coming. Well, you understand this is the season, but you can see its signs today. And this recollection that the end of all things is near is intended to act as a cue for the Christian. If Jesus is really coming again, we must live like it. And if we must live like it, then the immediate question is, is, well, how do we live like it? When the squirrel's anticipating winter, it gathers up nuts in preparation. We prepare, but in a different fashion. Some people, in anticipation of the apocalypse, the end of all things, they go to Walmart and stock up. That's not what the New Testament prescribes. That's not how we prepare. Peter says how we should prepare. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Now, why is he saying this? Why is he saying that we need to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray? The reason why he says this is because he knows that we're liable to fall prey to temptation. That we're liable to fall away. He remembers what Jesus has told him. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus tells him, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Luke 21, 36, Jesus says, Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. You know, we talked about how Jesus was the, in his resurrection was kind of the first fruits of what was to come. But Jesus in his suffering is also the first fruits of the suffering which was to come. And so you kind of have a little snapshot of what Christians must be prepared to persevere through. Jesus tells Peter, be on the watch, pray because the flesh is weak. And we know that Peter failed. He denied Jesus three times. He ran away. But Peter's teaching from experience here. We need to be praying, to be on our guard, that we will not fall away in the face of pressure, in the face of of suffering. And this is something that we should be doing, not just individually, but collectively. When you see the word you here, it's not just meaning you individually, it's actually in the plural. So to put it in southern slang, saying y'all. Y'all need to be praying. Together, collectively, we need to be praying. The other way that we prepare is by caring for each other. And he talks about this in verses 8 through 10. 
I mentioned a couple weeks ago Jesus' command that we ought to love one another and that by loving each other as fellow believers, as disciples, this is how the world will actually know that we're disciples of Jesus, by the love that we share with each other. He talks about that in John 13. And so in verse 8, Peter says, Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now again, at first read, this might be a little bit confusing. You know, is he saying that this is an alternative to faith in Jesus and his sacrifice? That we can just love and that takes care of sin? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the relationships between believers. And the reality that sin crops up within the community of the church. And if you're trying to think about, well, what does that look like? Well, just think about yourself. All of us can think about moments where they weren't exactly our most shining moments in the body of Christ. I can think about moments like that. But what do we do with that? Imagine if everyone just harbored their grievances against each other. The community of the church would would fall apart. So the idea of love covering over a multitude of sins means that we don't do that. We don't harbor our grievances. We resolve them in really one of two ways. We either, either reconcile with each other, if it's something so serious that we need to address the person, we do so in accordance with what Jesus has taught us in Matthew 18. So we reconcile or we overlook. We don't maintain a list of all the bad things someone has done against me. I decide I'm not going to hold that against them. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13, 5-6. He says, Love does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So if we truly love each other as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, we'll either seek to reconcile with each other or we'll overlook those sins, recognizing that God has overlooked a whole lot in me. (laughs) And so let me show that same grace and love to my fellow brother or sister. How else do we prepare? How else are we ready? Peter says in verse 9, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I don't know about you, but when I'm writing up my list about how I need to be prepared, this doesn't naturally come to mind, hospitality. In the early church, though, this was obviously apparent because the early church met in homes. They didn't have nice structures like this. And so you had to be prepared to welcome people into your home. And this is why in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it says that leaders need to be hospitable, ready to welcome people into their homes. While the structures have changed, I don't think this this command has changed. 
We still need to show hospitality to each other. It requires taking a close look in the mirror, I think. I mean, ask yourself, when's the last time you invited someone in the church over to your home? When's the last time that you went out to eat with someone from the church? I ask myself that. It's something that I haven't been great at. Most of you haven't been in the parsonage. But if we're going to truly grow, if we're going to be found ready and waiting when Jesus Christ returns, we need to be doing this. We need to be showing hospitality. This is how we show love to one another. Paul tells us in Romans 12, as he's talking about love, in Romans 12, 13, he says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This ought to be our practice. Again, though, we need to do this with the idea of Jesus' return in mind. And thinking about that, we ought not to do these things with grumbling. I know that can be difficult. Sometimes when you welcome someone into your home, you have to get your house in order. You don't want them to see your dirty underwear and stuff. And, um, and some of you are grumbling. And it's like, oh, I've got to do all this. You know, I've just been at work. We shouldn't do this with grumbling. This is a blessing. There should be no grumbling within the body of Christ. James, in James 5, verses 7 through 9, talks about how there should be no grumbling as we expect Jesus' return. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. God, take that seriously. The judge is standing at the door. When he shows up, when Jesus shows up, is he going to find a community of a bunch of people grumbling against each other? By God's grace, let it not be so. We depend on God's grace for the life of the church to flourish. This is why Peter reminds us that we need to steward the gifts, the spiritual gifts that we've received from God in its various forms. He talks about this in verse 10. He says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. What does that look like? In terms of the gifts, Paul talks a little bit about it in Romans 12, verses 6 through 7. He says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. And I think there's more, you can break it out even more and more. But the, the idea here is that this isn't something that's just a natural talent of yours. We all have certain skill sets. That's not what's being talked about here. This is something that has been given spiritually 
by God. So maybe you have some, let's say you're really good with your hands and you have just some natural skills there. That's the natural element. But putting them to use to God's kingdom for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of brothers and sisters, that's a spiritual gift. Because apart from that, you probably will want to, you won't want to do that. You might do it with a little bit of grumbling. You'll go grow tired without the gifting of God. And this is what Peter really wants to emphasize here in verse 11, that it's not our own resources, it's not in our own strength that we do these things. He says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. You know, as I come and preach a sermon, as anyone who comes and teaches, if they're doing it in the power of God and not their own, they're drawing a supply from without themselves, specifically the Word of God. I'm not coming here to deliver you my own thoughts. I'm coming here to deliver you the Word of God and what He's given. And the same holds true for the exercise of gifts of service. Being able to do those things, not in your own strength, but in the strength which God provides. Pray for that. If, you're, if you feel like, oh, I don't really want to do this or that, have you prayed about it? Have you sought the strength which God gives? Or have you just been depending on your own strength? When it comes to speaking, maybe you have an opportunity to speak and you feel da- <laughs> that's really daunting. Maybe you feel like Moses. God said, go speak to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, I do not want to do that. God sent him. And he used Aaron. He had a little bit of <laughs> grace and patience with Moses. If God has told us to go, if he has called us, that's all we need. He will give the resources. He will give the word. He will give the strength. The point of all of this is in our own glory. Peter says, it's so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The point is that God would be praised, glorified, and worshipped. And this goes hand in hand with us living for God's will rather than for our selfish, evil desires. Remember what Peter told us in 1 Peter 2. We are priests. In 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our purpose is His praise. Your ambition, my ambition, must be obedience. To do His will, not my own. What should you strive for? I think a lot of high school graduates and college students wonder about this. Young people scratch and claw their way forward and trying to figure out what to do with their life. 
And then they become older. And they begin wondering, has my life measured up to anything at all? Your greatest ambition in life must simply be this. To obey God. Will you live for God with the remaining breath he gives you? This is the defining question of your life. This is where success or failure is truly determined. It's not determined by Forbes list, by the New York Times bestsellers list, any hall of fame, by any human measure of success. Success is settled if on the final day you hear this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It's not impossible. Jesus has made it possible. He has come to make all things new, starting with you. It does not depend on you. Love, wisdom, strength, and courage don't come from you. They come from Jesus Christ, just as your forgiveness comes from him. You've been brought from death to life, and now you can be his instrument for righteousness. Let the master play. Let him make the melody so that you will be his song of praise. Let's pray. Dear Father, our prayer is simply this, that we would live for your will, that we would live for your will, that we would not live for our own desires and ambitions, Father. We pray, Father, that we would live in anticipation of Christ's return, that we would pray that we would not fall into temptation, that we would love one another in the way that you have loved us, overlooking our sins and reconciling us to you in Jesus Christ. That we would show hospitality to each other, Father. Welcoming each other into each other's homes, just as you have welcomed us into your households. Not by our strength, Father. We confess that we are weak, that we are incapable, that we were not able to defeat sin on our own, that we needed Jesus Christ to intervene And that if we will live for you, Father, we need your word upon our lips. We need your strength in our bones so that we will not falter or stumble, Father, but we'll live the remainder of our lives not for sin, but for you. In the power of the Holy Spirit, 
by the blood of Jesus Christ, Father. We ask that you would accomplish this in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through 1st and 2nd Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.